Paul says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Father, we humbly ask as always, just prepare us now by your Holy Spirit. Lord, aid us and assist us mentally, physically, spiritually in every way that our Lives may just be yielded completely to what you would want to say to us this morning. We believe that you're a God who speaks. And we believe, Father, that you speak through your word, that you inspired by your spirit, and that your spirit is here with us this morning as we worship. So we ask that he would be our interpreter and our instructor and the one whose voice we would hear speaking to us every thought and intent behind this passage that you have for us. So bless your word and help us to hear your voice, we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what perhaps do you think on this earth is perhaps the most dangerous force or the most dangerous threat to you and maybe to all of humanity? You know, if you look at the news today and you watch terrorism and the threats and barbaric things that happen through groups like ISIS and others, thoughts like that may come to our mind, of course. But I would venture to say the most dangerous force and threat to you and to all of humanity is very simply spiritual deception. And that is being deceived in some way in relation to spiritual and eternal things. And this is what our text this morning is addressing specifically in relation to end times events and things that will unfold in the latter days of which we find ourselves in and moving towards certainly if you look with me there in verse one if you draw your attention back as paul begins his comments he says now brethren concerning the coming of our lord jesus christ and our gathering together to him we ask you not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit he says or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ, or the idea same, the day of the Lord, had already come. Let no one deceive you, he says, by any means. So we can see here as Paul begins that he wants to settle the minds of these Christians there in Thessalonica who he knows and he's aware of their circumstances. He wants to settle this fearful mindset, it seems, that have sort of arisen among them as a group of believers who apparently, it seems, had been misled thinking that perhaps they had missed the rapture, the catching away of the saints to go into heaven and that they possibly were actually now 
having been thrust into this day of the Lord or the time of the tribulation. He specifically identifies the subject of their concern as he begins there in the first verse. Take note, he says, brethren, concerning the coming, that's our word there from the Greek again, the parousia, the appearing or the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, are gathering together to him. That is what he is addressing here. The coming of Jesus and the saints being gathered together and caught up to meet him. Paul basically here is just referring to what we looked at together and he addressed in his first letter to them. Let me refresh your memories in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul said, verse 15 through 17, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we, Christians, who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who are asleep, those who have died already. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will ride first, and we who are alive and remain shall be, Paul said, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord so that's what Paul's referring to here in verse 1 as he's talking about the coming of the Lord and our being gathered together to him he's reflecting back on that teaching which he already explained to them how that there is coming a time at any moment at in an imminent hour where Jesus will descend out of the clouds step out of the eternal dimension if you would doesn't say he comes down to earth at this point but this is when we, the Bible says, are instantaneously, miraculously snatched off this planet, all true believers, caught up to meet Jesus in the air, that we might go and be reunited with our loved ones who have already died in Christ and are together with him in heaven. And will then lead us then into a time period on this planet, those who remain on this planet that weren't followers of Christ, into a time period which is often called the day of the Lord, which encompasses many different things. So he's reminding them regarding this time of being caught up to meet Jesus and how we're going to be removed from earth and escape the coming wrath of God. He said in the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians that God has not appointed us to wrath as Christians, but that we might experience instead the salvation of Jesus. And when we escape and are caught up to meet Jesus in the air, it's at that point that marks the beginning of this time period we've talked about, the Bible refers to as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord basically is that time period which ushers in what we often refer to as that seven-year period of tribulation or the tribulation period. And uh, it encompasses many different things. That seven-year period particularly is when God once again works uniquely among the nation of Israel to fulfill one seven-year uh, period that's still remaining. Uh, and also, God will be righteously at that time punishing and judging the Christ-rejecting world that is left behind on this planet that refused to accept his son Jesus Christ and follow him. Now this concept, this time period called the day of the Lord encompasses many different events uh, and, and things. We've talked about this already. It includes the revelation and the rulership of this world leader called the Antichrist who we'll see in our text and talk about this morning. It includes great cataclysmic events and judgments being poured out on this world, which will bring great suffering upon the inhabitants who are left upon this earth after Jesus came and took out his followers. It will then culminate at the end of that seven years with the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ, 
when you and I as believers return back with him in our glorified bodies as Jesus comes back as he overthrows the Antichrist as we read about in verse 8 there and then Jesus sets up his kingdom on this earth and his throne in Jerusalem and rules and reigns for a thousand years during what we call the kingdom age or the millennium now somehow by some form of deception an unhealthy fear had began to arise in the hearts and minds of the Thessalonians so that Paul says to them regarding these things, verse 2, that you would not be, he says, soon shaken in mind or troubled. So something had caused them to be shaken up mentally, spiritually, where they were troubled, basically thinking that the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to him had either one of two things either never happened as it was supposed to happen, like Paul said it would, or worse yet, that they had somehow missed it and that now the day of the Lord had already come, as Paul says there in verse 2. And that would be a very terrifying thing. And Paul says, look, don't be alarmed that that's come to pass. That's a faulty idea. Remember, as we said last week in chapter 1, these believers were enduring a tremendous time of suffering they were dealing with trouble and tribulation, intense persecution. And as a result, some of them were wrongly interpreting, listen, they were wrongly interpreting their tribulation as the tribulation. And they were under tremendous tribulation and difficulty, yes, but they were thinking this tribulation, oh no, this is, this is the tribulation that Paul told us about. And now we're stuck in it. And now we're going through it. And unfortunately, it appears that idea was even being wrongly presented and propagated somehow among them that people were trying to somewhat interpret the times by saying in some way that the day of the Lord had already come. So Paul says here in our text, he says, let no one deceive you by any means. He says, don't be shaken in mind. Look what he says, verse 2 either by spirit or by a word or by some letter that somehow is being said that it came from us. So he says, don't be deceived by any spirit, perhaps maybe some supposed revelation or vision of some angelic messenger that communicated some divine message that said that they had missed the rapture or that this was now the day of the Lord. He says, don't be deceived by any word, probably a reference to some a potential prophetic word that someone said, God's given me a prophetic word and thus saith the Lord, you know, store guns and get ammunition and keep all your food because this is it and we're in it now. And, and Paul says, no, don't, don't, don't let that deceive you. He says verse two, uh, two as well, or as by some letter as if from us which indicates maybe there was some circulating uh, false epistle as from Paul or from the inspiration of the Spirit uh, that was basically someone saying, hey, we had a divine revelation and God told us to record this. This is the new revelation from God uh, and that somehow it contradicted what Scripture taught as a whole. And, and Paul says in regards to those things, his exhortation there, verse 3, let no one deceive you, he says, by any means, by word, by a spirit, by some false portion of scripture. And you know what? That same exhortation is true for us. We should not let anyone in our day and age, as well as Christians, deceive us by any means either. And by all means, in the day and age which we live in, we have the blessing beyond the time of the Thessalonians where we have the full canon of scripture. 
We have the entirety of all of the New Testament together with the Old Testament at our disposal and we are able to search the scriptures to verify what is true, to validate very clearly what is of God and what is not of God. In fact, if you remember, the people of Berea were actually commended because of their wise stewardship in regards to this. Acts 17.11, we read this. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word of the Lord with all readiness, but they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Interesting, Luke actually commended the people of Berea more than the Thessalonians because he said, this is what they did very wisely. They listened to everything Paul the Apostle had to say. But he, just because he was Paul the Apostle, they didn't take at face value that that meant that somehow that, that everything he said was going to always be accurate. So they look, hey, this is our eternal destiny. This is our spiritual condition. So it's not that we don't receive from him or don't want it, but, but we're going to make sure that we search the scriptures to make sure these things line up, that they're accurate, that they're true. And they were commended for that. And look, the Bible in the New Testament, as well as both Jesus' words himself and the Gospels, warn in direct relation to end time events specifically that there is indeed going to be an increase in deception spiritually. The Bible tells us that very clearly. Jesus spoke of that numerous times, how in direct connection to end times events, there's going to be an increase, a rise of greater and greater spiritual deception. That is why this morning for us as Christians, why knowing the truth given to us in Scripture is absolutely critical each day we get closer to the coming of Jesus Christ. Because the deception and the level of deception that exists spiritually is only going to increase and only going to intensify. I believe there's truly going to come a time in some senses where you're not going to be able to believe what you see with your eyes. You're going to have to look at what the scripture says and sometimes shut your eyes to what you're seeing. Lest you be deceived. Paul's going to say in our next uh, section of verses that the coming of the lawless one is with all lying signs and wonders as far as deception. That is deceptive miracles. Signs and wonders, but yet are from satanic powers and forces used to deceive. So this is our safeguard spiritually. And this morning, please hear me in this way. If you are here and you are not genuinely born again yet and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, let me in love say there has never been a more critical time for you to stop playing church and stop playing spiritual games and find out the truth for yourself and make sure that you know the truth and make sure that you are accurately aware lest you be deceived spiritually and destroyed spiritually. There's no need for that. I'll tell you the place to start. It's really simple. Jesus just said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. And the first thing to do to make sure you know the truth is to know the one who is the essence of truth, which is Jesus. Because then the spirit of truth will be inside of you and you will have the greatest radar to detect error and falsehood. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus, start there. It's important. This is the day to come to know Jesus to safeguard yourself. So Paul goes on here now in our text to further explain some more instruction of how and why these Thessalonians and you and I as Christians can know 
for sure that the day of the Lord had not yet began, that it hadn't come yet, that they hadn't missed the rapture, that they hadn't accidentally fallen into the day of the Lord. He says, look as he goes on there, verse 3, he says, for that day, again, the day of the Lord will not come unless, key word, unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed so he says that day will not come unless so what paul's going to do here by the spirit is give two indicators two sort of concrete things that mark out that time period that paul's saying look if these things are not a part of what's going on then he says then you know that you haven't missed it yet these things he says they are a direct connection indeed this would validate the day of the lord has begun this would indicate that the day of the Lord has come to pass. And he's going to give two things. The first thing he mentions here for us in verse 3 is he says that day won't come unless, number one, the falling away comes first. The falling away comes first. Now, there are a few, I'm not particularly one of them, who see this phrase, and I'm just putting this out there in case you've heard this before, see this phrase falling away as a reference, another reference to the rapture, uh, the idea of that departing, and it's a term that speaks of departing. And some people think what Paul was referring to there was indicating the church departing or, or leaving from the planet and going to be with the Lord, and that that's what he's referring to there in verse 3. Let me say, I believe that's going to happen. It's what we just talked about. I believe we're going to be raptured. I believe we're going to be caught up. But that was the language Paul used in, in the first epistle, that we'd be caught up, different terms. And I believe that's going to happen. But I don't think it's very likely that that's what Paul's referring to here. But again, you be a brain. You're free to decide. If that's what you like, keep it. God bless you. We can so go to heaven together. Let me tell you what I think the truth is now, though, since I got the pulpit. Anyway. The term Paul uses there, falling away, in the Greek is apostasia. And the term that Paul uses there in the Greek is a term that speaks of forsaking or departing from something in a negative sense. In other words, it speaks of a revolt or a rebellion or an abandonment. It was a term used in ancient Greek writing to refer to political revolts, to revolt, refer to times when people would rebel against rulers and kings. It was also used to speak of the abandonment of the forsaking of one's religious beliefs and practices obviously you can tell by listening the word apostasia is where we get our english word apostasy and when you look up the word apostasy the definition of apostasy is a renunciation of one's religious faith and abandonment of previous loyalty a defection so paul here refers by the spirit of god's inspiration to some divinely forecasted falling away some departure, some abandonment that's predicted here, scheduled for the last days. Sadly, there is coming a time when there's going to be some abandonment of truth. He calls it the falling away. The falling away, a time when there will be some revolt or rebellion against God and his son, a departure of what is right and righteous from what was once believed and once practiced. And again, when you study the collective scripture as a whole, certainly that lines up with the warnings and the tone of other passages of Scripture. For example, Jesus seemed to, in his own words, indicate an apostate condition would come and exist. In Luke 18, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? 
Jesus said as well in Matthew 24, because iniquity abounds or increases uh, an end times event, he says, because that increases, the love of many will grow cold. So Jesus seemed to indicate an apostate type condition will come to pass. Paul also discerned this in 2 Timothy 3. Paul there speaking of the terrible times in the last days. He said these words, there will be those who have a form of godliness, but denying its power therein. In other words, they have everything outwardly of the trappings of, of godliness. They go through the motions. They say the right things. They do the right things. They, you know, they, the, the whole process of Christianity and church is played out. But he says, but there's a dynamic, there's a power, a genuine power of experiencing God that's absent. It's just an outward shell. It's just going through the motions. First Timothy 4.1, Paul says, the spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Listen to what he says. Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Well, that guy's got to be accurate. He's got a TV program. He's talking about doctrine, teaching things. Well, the Bible says there's going to come a time when there are doctrines that are being put forth by demonic spirits. Paul speaks of how Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light and he says as well to the Corinthians, are not then his ministers able to represent themselves as ministers of righteousness? That's pretty scary, isn't it? God has ministers, but so does Satan. The Bible tells us that. And it seems that there is this time coming where there will be this apostasia, this falling away. Now, of course, the indication of what's predicted by God there in his word of this falling away causes, of course, all of us, many of us, to become inquisitive and wonder and speculate. Well, what exactly does that refer to then specifically? I mean, what does that mean and what's going to happen and, and how's it going to happen? And who's going to participate in that? Who's going to actually be a part of that abandonment and that falling away? Does that mean that the professing Christian church is going to undergo a time of great spiritual apostasy where there's a, a, a departure of what's right and righteous indicating that maybe congregations or Christians are going to defect spiritually? That they're going to turn away and abandon fundamental tenets of the Christian faith? That there's going to be a departure in some way from genuine Christianity that, that Christians and churches are going to forsake scriptural teachings and scriptural truths to accommodate a culture that becomes carnal and more ungodly and more wicked in the last days? Or is it a reference to humanity in general? Again, that is going to just so brazenly rebel against God in the latter days that's going to completely abandon and rebel and forsake God as their king and their creator to further and further abandonment, to, to cast off all restraint and to cast off all restraint and to fall away in everything that would seem dignified and human. And just this incredible departure of the world, Paul says in the last days, perilous times are going to come, he says to Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 as he writes there. Look, let me share something with you. The reality is, here's what you can tell. The Bible says that it will happen, but then it doesn't tell us how it's going to happen. It tells us it will happen, but the Bible 
is silent on how it will happen. We're told there'll be a definite falling away spiritually, but God chooses not to inform us exactly how that's going to happen or any other details or description of it. You can speculate, you can ponder, you, you can try and figure it out, but God chose to be silent. He says it's going to happen, but that's all he gives to us. I think for you and I, here's our way to respond to it. What's most important for you and I is the awareness that it's going to happen and the fact that God tells us about it in preparation, knowing there's a slippery slope that's prevalent spiritually, that should make us just put all our attention on trying to guard and protect our own hearts. Instead of trying to be the mastermind or the great revelator who figured out what it all is, maybe what I ought to do is say, you know what, I just want to make sure I don't participate. I just want to make sure that I don't even begin down that road. I need to focus on staying close to Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit and holding tightly to the Word of God as the authority in my life and in our church. Let us be like Jude who says to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let that be each of our missions as a Christian in these days and as a church that we would contend no matter what others are doing, that we would contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down, this sacred faith in Christ that's been given to us in our generation, that we'd stand fast in the Lord and put on the armor of God. And I'll tell you, if we are standing firm spiritually, one thing that will be sure, probably a few less people will fall away. A few less people will perhaps participate in whatever it's referring to there. Well, Paul then gives another indication of how someone could know the day of the Lord had come or they were in it as they were struggling with this. He says also that day can't come to pass unless the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So the second thing he points to that would confirm that the day of the Lord had come is that the Antichrist would have surfaced. He would have been revealed. He would be known. He's caused at a time period when the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. It's a reference to the person the Bible refers to as this coming world ruler that is going to at some point come on the scene at a strategic time and ascend to a place of global rulership, of international leadership. He's referred to by many names and titles in the Bible. Here we get two of them. He's called the man of sin and the son of perdition which tells us two things about him. He's the man of sin. He may appear wonderful publicly at first, but inwardly he is governed by all sinful desires to try and do what he does and says in any way he behaves. And he's also called here, this world ruler, the son of perdition, or the idea is the son of destruction. So what the Bible is telling us is that this man will be the offspring of everything that's diabolical. He will be the offspring of everything that's satanic that will lead to utter destruction among all of humanity. Interesting, Revelation 13.2 says actually regarding the uh, world ruler, this Antichrist, that the devil will give him his power, his throne, and his great authority. In a sense, it's Satan incarnate. It's pretty scary to think about the reality of what this individual is going to become at this time. Most often he's known by the title in 1 John, uh, which was given to him, which was the Antichrist. And I think, quite honestly, that's what stuck with him the best, this man, the Antichrist, this coming world ruler. And I think that's probably a good description because the word anti has two meanings. The word anti can mean instead of, or it also can mean in opposition to. And he is both. The Antichrist 
will in all of his personage and everything that he does be in complete opposition to everything that Christ represents, to everything that is Christian. And he also is the Antichrist, the idea is instead of, because he will be one who seeks to take the place of Christ. He will be a pseudo-savior. He will come as a false messiah to a world that will welcome and embrace him at a time when they're longing for someone to step in and provide leadership and salvation on this chaotic planet. Regarding the revealing and the emergence of Antichrist, which is what verse 3 is talking about when he is revealed, regarding the revealing of this world leader, the Bible indicates, Daniel and other places, that this, what is going to happen is there's going to come together a revived Roman Empire in the European territories. And out of that revived Roman Empire that will come back together in the European areas, there will ultimately then emerge out of that this charismatic, persuasive, diplomatic leader who will rise to the surface, who will initially offer answers and solutions for all the world's plagues and problems at that hour. He will offer for the first time and bring about the ability, peace in the Middle East, which seems quite miraculous to bring to pass. He will be someone who comes on the scene and will be able to have answers to stabilize a very unstable world. Stabilizing the economy, stabilizing governments, unifying the world powers. Because why? Millions of people have just disappeared from this planet. We need to come together. We think life's chaotic now. Imagine millions of Christians just disappearing with no explanation. And the world just destabilizing, economies breaking apart, the chaos and the unifying of a one world government, even a one world religion, all to what? Help survive in unity and coming together in peace. And here we get some insight into some of what he'll ultimately do. Look as verse 4 goes on. It says, Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So though the Antichrist initially will be perceived as this wonderful diplomat of the ages, this gifted, brilliant leader and politician globally in that first half of the seven years that start the tribulation, right at the middle point of the tribulation, three and a half years into it, at that point he shows his true colors, and that's what verse 4 is talking about here. Verse 4 brings us past the first three and a half years of the tribulation to the middle point at that horrible moment when the Antichrist brings forth all of his true colors. And all of a sudden, the satanic, sinful, wicked intentions come forth where verse 4 describes how he will ultimately exalt himself as being divine. And he will forcibly demand that he would be worshipped as God. Look what it says there. It says he will sit as God, showing himself that he is God. Forcibly demanding people to worship him as God. And notice where he does it. It says... Verse 4, in the temple of God. Now take note of that. In those days, in the last days, in the time of the tribulation, there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. In order for the Antichrist to do this, to go into the temple and make that declaration that he's divine in the temple, what does that mean? A temple needs to be there. There's no temple there in Jerusalem right now. There will be the existence 
of a temple there in Jerusalem because the Antichrist will be the one, it seems, who works in a way that allows the Jews to rebuild their temple and to reinstitute their worship and their sacrificial system. The Bible predicts in Daniel 9 how the Antichrist as a world ruler will somehow establish a covenant, some kind of, of an agreement with the Jews and others to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple there in Jerusalem. Try to fathom this and to reinstitute the sacrificial system and their worship. But Daniel 9.27 says in the middle of the week or that seven-year period, he will bring an end, it says, to sacrifice and offering. And here in verse 4, we're told exactly what's going to happen, that he, it says, is going to exalt himself above all that's called God and worship, and he's going to go and sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So all of a sudden... He completely turns on the Jewish people. And the absolute worst Jewish persecution imaginable that has ever happened is going to happen in that hour as he goes into the most sacred place of the Jewish people who he once was so friendly and favorable towards to let them rebuild their temple. And he goes in and he desecrates it and proclaims himself divine and says that he must be worshipped. Jesus refers to this event as the abomination that causes desolation. Daniel speaks of this event in chapter 11, verse 36 and 37. And this blasphemous event, when the Antichrist does this, will be the final straw that breaks the camel's back. In a sense, this one who was formerly so peaceful and brought prosperity to everybody on the planet and peace, now it says he exalts himself and he demands to be worshipped as God, even as Satan has always desired to come to pass, because that's who he's directly connected to. Listen to some passages from Revelation 13. I just want to read them to you. Listen to what it declares. It says, so they worship the dragon. That's a reference to the devil who gave authority to the beast. That's a, a reference to the Antichrist. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and given authority to continue for 42 months or another three and a half years. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blasphemy his name, his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe and tongue and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So at this moment, as verse four describes, when the Antichrist proclaims himself divine, demands worship. That marks right there the last three and a half years of that seven-year period of tribulation that the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, when literally hell on earth unfolds to the greatest extent to those who are left on this planet. Revelation 13 going on describes this. It says, anyone who refuses to worship the beast will be killed. He will cause both small and great, rich and poor, free or slave to receive a mark on their right hand or their forehead so that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name, which is 666. So as these events unfold, this blasphemous abomination is the Antichrist 
forcibly requires worship. You can't even buy or sell unless you bow the knee and worship to him and have this ability to have uh, transaction power economically with this sign that will somehow be attached to that. This causes the full wrath of God to be unleashed in a way like never before in those last three and a half years. Now, in relation to that, we might ask, wow, so where are we then in proximity to those kind of events happening in the distant future? Well, do a little research. There are zealous groups of Jews today, for example, the Temple Mount Institute, who are already dedicated to making preparations for a rebuilt temple. They have already rebuilt many of the furnishings and parts of the temple. Uh, they are already training men to be future priests, primarily because they're just zealous and desirous to want to rebuild their temple there in Jerusalem. But what is so unique is not even realizing they're fulfilling and preparing to do exactly what the Bible says is going to happen in that seven-year period of tribulation. Here's what's even more interesting. If you ask, honestly, some Jews, many Jews, quite honestly, if you ask them, how will you know? Because the Jews rejected Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. And if you ask them, well, then how will you know the Messiah? If Jesus of Nazareth wasn't the Messiah, how will you know Messiah when he comes? Many of them will answer, he will be the man who leads us to rebuild our temple in Jerusalem. That's somewhat eerie, isn't it? Jesus said prophetically, I think, John 5, 43, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me, but if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Interesting. Look, you're here this morning and some of you are probably thinking, wow, that is way more information than I wanted to know about this crazy coming world leader. I don't plan to be here for that. What do I need to know all that for? Well, I'm just trying to keep with the heart of Paul. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? They were a church just a few weeks old and Paul was teaching them about doctrine and end times theology and even thought it was important to share about the Antichrist. So Paul was sort of lovingly reproving him here in verse 5. He's saying, Look, do I have to remind you about this stuff? You think you're in the day of... Remember, I taught you this when I was there, he's saying. I already shared this. Look how he goes on, verse 6. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed, the Antichrist, that is, in his own time. So Paul reminds them and shows us that for right now, until a set time, the Antichrist is currently, look what it says, being restrained in his emergence as a coming world leader. That's what the Bible's saying to us here in verse 6. There's coming a time when he will come to the world stage, yet until then, the reason he's not able to come to power to come into his position of, of being a one world ruler is that something the Bible says is divinely restraining him. Now I want you to think of that. Picture in your mind a divine restraining order. We know what a restraining order is, right? Hopefully that hasn't existed in this room, but we know what one is. A restraining order. There's a divine restraining order on the Antichrist coming to power. The idea is holding him back preventing him, keeping him, restricting him, keeping him under control so that he does not come forth until a set time. The Bible saying something is preventing and restraining the full culmination of this lawlessness on earth, which will be personified ultimately in a person actually referred to as the Antichrist. Look how Paul goes on, verse 7. He says, For the mystery 
of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then he says the lawless one will be revealed. So notice, though the man of lawlessness is not yet actively at work, Paul says the mystery of lawlessness is at work. Now again, when the Bible uses the word mystery, it's not talking about something mysterious. The Bible uses the word mystery refers to something that's not yet fully revealed. It's not yet fully known. So what he's saying is this evil power of the working of the spirit of Antichrist, it's already in operation in the world, but yet it hasn't been culminated and personified in the person of the Antichrist yet. There's coming a man of lawlessness, but right now this mystery of lawlessness that hasn't yet fully come to fruition is already at work. And again, John speaks of this in his epistle in 1 John 2 and 4, how the spirit of Antichrist is already in operation in the world. And ladies and gentlemen, have you ever kind of noticed in our world, it seems as a very anti-Christian spirit in your school, in your culture, in your conversations? Isn't it amazing how very opposed and anti-people get all of a sudden? Well, we're tolerant of everything. But when you bring up Jesus, if you talk about Christian ethic, all of a sudden there's this, it's almost this venomous anger that comes. Why? Because flying under the radar in an unseen realm is the spirit of Antichrist, an un, an, 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 a, a, a spirit that's anti-Christian that is in operation already, that ultimately is going to be personified in a person. But God said this is what would be happening in the world and that's why we see it. Now one day in the future when God's restraining influence is pulled back and removed, verse 8 says then, then the lawless one will be revealed. And looking at the world stage today and the signs of our time, I believe it's very, very likely myself that the person of who the Antichrist will culminate in is very likely already alive today and probably ingrained maybe in politics somewhere. I don't really care to know who he is because I don't plan on being around when he shows up. But I believe it's very likely. And I look at our world stage, it's being set for him already. Look at the world stage, spiritually, morally, economically, our world is being groomed to not only embrace, but to long for somebody like this. Economically, militarily, spiritually, they're longing for someone to bring everybody together and fix all the world's problems. We see it already in operation. But what or who is holding back the devil's plan? Well, that's what's being described here in verses 7 and 8. Notice, he says, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, you notice the personal pronouns? He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Personal pronouns referring to a person. Who is the only person who can restrain the power of the devil? God. No doubt God in the person of his spirit who is the one who is actively at work on the earth today. So when it says he who now restrains, I believe it's referring to the spirit of God. And let me ask this, where is the spirit of God primarily at work and in operation today? In the church, in Christians. The Bible tells us that we personally, as well as the church corporately, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So the church, at times, weak as it may be in its state, the very presence of the Spirit within Christians in the church functions as a restraining force against evil, 
preventing, hear me, the full forces and functions of all of evil being released in their full potential. The presence of the church, the presence of Christians are what is preventing everything from Satan's sin and lawlessness from reaching its full-fledged potential that it actually could. It's the Holy Spirit at work within our lives and among us by his presence. Jesus said as Christians, we are the salt of the earth. What's salt? It's a preserving influence. It holds back decomposition. It holds back decay and those kind of things. And we in this decaying world as Christians are the only thing that's keeping it from decaying and decomposing more morally and spiritually. Our presence here. Notice, he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. When is that going to happen? When is the restrainer going to be taken away? Well, I think it's going to happen at the removal of the church from this planet of the rapture. When the Holy Spirit draws Christians and the church off of this planet. Now look, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit's going to abandon the planet and leave altogether. The Spirit of God is at work during the time of the tribulation. It just indicates the Holy Spirit's power as a restraining ministry during the age of the church is then going to be removed. The restraining work of the church and the Spirit's ministry in the church will be pulled back and taken away. And at that point, that prior restraining force is pulled back and then all evil in its full potential is released on this planet. All satanic influence is released to its full potential. Now, in light of that, please hear me this morning. Keep in mind, that means that right now, everything that we're seeing happening on this planet that is sick and satanic and evil and unrighteous, listen, this is the restrained version This is the restrained version. Let that soak in a little bit. Do you see how important your presence is as a Christian? Do you see how critical it is for you as a follower of Christ to be faithful and to walk with Jesus and to be the salt and light that you're called? We are God's vessels and the only restraining influence of evil on this planet. I don't think that means that we need to get forceful. I don't think that means that we need to be political and, and go out of control and, and try and, in a sense, strong arm. Look, but what it means is that we need to be a spirit-filled, Christ-loving, Bible-holding Christian who says, look, I am one of the only things on this planet that is keeping unrestrained chaos from coming to pass. Look, this morning, please understand, you alone may be the one restraining influence where you are, in your job. You may be the one restraining influence that keeps conversation from getting way more debased and filthy. So as a Christian, restrain the evil. You may be the one person in your family when other people are compromising to say, you know what, no, I am not going to let the devil have his way. I am going to be the restraining influence of what's right and Christ-like and godly. You may be it. In your school, you may be that one restraining influence to say, look, yes, 99% of the other students are living immorally, but I am not going to live immorally. I am going to love Jesus. 
I'm going to restrain this whole school from falling apart by being one restraining influence. It's a call the Lord has given to us. Now, regarding this lawless one, look how verse 8 concludes. It says, Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. Interesting. That moves way then to the end of a seven-year career. It's powerful, but it's pretty brief. Because Jesus returns in all of his brightness and his glory and the Antichrist who seems so invincible and so powerful instantaneously, it says, is consumed by the brightness of Jesus. The simple point is very much this. How powerful is Jesus? How powerful is Jesus? I mean, bottom line, look, Jesus wins. That is why, that is why our message is and our reminder is it is so foolish to resist Jesus. Why would you want to resist Jesus? Jesus is going to win in the end. Why not get on the winning team? It's never going to work out to resist Jesus. The Antichrist had the best possible chance. He's Satan incarnate with all the power of the devil. And he tried to resist Jesus and it fell apart at the seams. It's so silly to resist Jesus. And why is God still restraining the whole program right now? I mean, God, why are you restraining the program? I'll give you one simple reason to think about. It's because he loves people. And it's because he wants to see more souls be saved. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. This morning, if that's you, please don't hold up the program. It's time to get right with Jesus. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray together.